Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. As we do most Mondays, we'll spend the next 20 or so minutes on the latest in COVID science in conversation with Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Dr. Swartzberg, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. We'll start the conversation now, but just as a reminder for listeners, we'll be taking calls for questions about COVID science and public health in just a few minutes. So, Dr. Swartzberg, last Monday, President Joe Biden officially ended the COVID national emergency, a decision his administration made after a majority of Congress recommended it, while in place, the official national emergency gave the government more power to take sweeping steps to respond to the virus and implement plans to deal with economic, health care, and welfare systems that were impacted at the same time that the Biden administration ends the national emergency, it also announced a $5 billion plan to speed up the development of new and different COVID vaccines, focusing on long-lasting monoclonal antibodies resistant to new COVID-19 variants as well as broader vaccines that can protect against several different coronaviruses. Dr. Swartzberg, what is a long-lasting monoclonal antibody, and how does that differ from the COVID vaccines that we've had access to already? Why is now the time to shift in that direction? Sure. The time has been to shift in that direction for a while, and I'm delighted to see this money coming in to develop long-term monoclonal antibodies as well as better vaccines. So to answer your question, There are some people who don't respond to the vaccine. Most of these people are people who have problems with their immune system, either because of medications they're taking to combat something else or because of something that they've developed or were born with where they just don't respond well. Fortunately, it's not an enormous part of our population, but it is a significant part. There's several million people like this. Monoclonal antibodies that are long-lasting mean exactly what it says. It means these are antibodies that are focused on one particular thing, that is in this case, the virus, and that they last a long time in our bloodstream. Typically, antibodies uh, that we produced uh, just last, oh, less than 90 days. Um, But in this case, we have monoclonal antibodies, we've produced them, that can last up to six months. It means you get one injection, you've got antibody protection for six months. Now, a lot of people have experienced the benefits of this already. There was a drug with the brand name Evusheld, which was a combination of two monoclonal antibodies that was very effective in protecting people who were immunocompromised. Unfortunately, the virus has found a way around that. And Evusheld has not been effective for quite a few months now. And that's left our immunocompromised patients, at least a certain group of them, really out of luck. There's nothing that 
can they can do to protect themselves beyond what we were doing at the beginning of the pandemic, and that is trying to avoid this virus. The vaccines, they don't respond too well. If they get an infection, it could be much more serious because of their immune deficiencies. And these monoclonal antibodies are desperately needed for this group of people. So we need it. Uh, it's a long answer to your question, Jesse, but it's a, a really important um, question, and it's really in something terribly important we need to produce. Otherwise, um, a lot of a lot of Americans are not going to get the protection they really need. So that's what monoclonal antibodies are. They're not vaccines. They give what we call passive immunity for about six months of good coverage. So I just want to clarify, because some of the vaccine skepticism I've heard um has a lot to do with the newness of mRNA technology and mRNA vaccines. When we're talking about these monoclonal antibodies that are so necessary, that's a that's a different and older technology. Is that right? It is. Um, it's, the monoclonal antibody production has been around for a while now, um, and it's um, pretty well established, quite safe. Uh, we just don't see comp major complications from these. So in that sense, um, people should be comforted with that information. But there is a misconception I think that people have when they talk about vaccines, the mRNA vaccines that were some of the ones that we're using. These vaccines have been, in, uh, been studied and being produced for about 40 years. They just haven't been used in the population up until the time of COVID. So it's not like somebody just invented something two years ago or three years ago and then put it on the shelf and gave it to people. Uh, no, the process of, of the mRNA vaccines has a long scientific history. Well, jumping back for a second to the Biden administration's plan, it's $5 billion of funding also plans to produce a vaccine that can be administered through the nose. How does a vaccine that's administered through the nose work? I'm interested in the science of it, but also just in the basic functionality. I mean, we have access to all kinds of vaccines for all kinds of things that are considered life-saving. As far as I understand, most of them have to be injected into our bloodstream. That's right. We do have a, a nasal vaccine for influenza, um, and that's been around for a while. The, the idea here is that I think, well, here's how I think about it. Um, when we get injected with the vaccine, our bodies produce an immune response to it. And part of that immune response is the production of antibodies. And part of it's the production of what are called T cells, cells that can ferret out and identify infected cells in our body and destroy them. When we get an injection, we develop what's called systemic immunity. Throughout our entire body, we get really good immune response. Unfortunately, that immunity doesn't translate very well to the surfaces on our body, particularly what we call mucous membranes, the lining of our nose, the lining of our eye, the lining of our throats. Those are our mucous membranes, and we don't get a lot of the systemic immunity that transfers or crosses over to the mucosa. And unfortunately, with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, that's how it gets into our body. It gets into our body by infecting the mucosal cells, the cells in our nose and our throat, for example, or on our eyes. And they multiply there, the virus multiplies there, and then escapes into the body. So with the current vaccines that we have that are injectable, 
once the virus goes from the mucous membranes and gets into our system, we can attack it very well. And that's why we see such very good protection against hospitalization and death, because we don't get as sick because we have that protection. The same would hold with previously having had an infection. The immunity we get from that is very good systemically, but the mucosal immunity is not very good. So what this translates to is that we, if we only have systemic immunity or mainly systemic immunity, when we inhale the virus, the virus can multiply on our mucosal membranes. It can proliferate there and it can start to invade our body. Once it does that, of course, our immune system that we have with the systemic immunity kicks in. But while the virus is multiplying in our nose and our throat, for example, we are contagious and we can get symptoms like cold symptoms, um, sore throat, runny nose, for example. We are contagious to other people. So what's desperately needed is a vaccine that not only protects us against serious illness like we have now, but we need a vaccine that protects us against infection. And the reason we need that is not only to prevent us from getting even cold symptoms, but it is to prevent us from being contagious. So if you think about it, if we could develop that kind of vaccine, perhaps in conjunction with a injection, so you got an injection and then you used inhaled the vaccine in your nose, for example, we could not only protect people from getting seriously ill and dying, but we could protect them from getting mildly ill and we could protect them from being contagious. That would be a game changer. That would be, um, frankly, if we can do that, uh, the virus is no longer a serious problem for us. Well, let's hope that development goes smoothly. Um, I'm Jesse Strauss in conversation with Dr. John Swartzberg from UC Berkeley School of Public Health. And we're opening up the phone lines for our listeners to call in with questions about COVID science and how to protect ourselves. The number to call in is 1-800-958-9008. We're happy to take your questions live on air or by email at upfront at kpfa.org. Again, the number to call in with your questions is one 800 9589008 Dr. Swartzberg last week was Black Maternal Health Week. I first off just want to acknowledge that on air because maternal health and reproductive rights are absolutely under attack in this country and the most aggressive impact of those attacks often land on black communities harder than most. Um, there was also a new study published last week showing that COVID has caused brain damage in two infants who were infected as fetuses during pregnancies. Now, let's be clear, two is an extremely low number, but this is the first time that a scientific study has shown this direct impact of COVID in a pregnant person on their child. Um, John, what do we know about this latest study? And also for folks who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant, what do we need to know about COVID in relationship to fetal development? Right. Clearly, one of the terribly important questions that we've had from the beginning is, can this virus cross from mom through the placenta to the fetus? And if it can, can the virus, when it gets into the fetus, damage the fetus? And one of the really nice things that we've seen early on and through the mid portion and the latter portion of this pandemic is that most of the time, 
almost all the time, we don't see the virus crossing into the fetus. So we hadn't really confirmed that that was a serious problem. And we hadn't confirmed at all that if it did cross into the fetus, that it would cause any problems for the newborn. Unfortunately, this study that was published in a, in a very good journal, the journal called Pediatrics, um, identified, as you pointed out, two children who were born to moms who had COVID during the second trimester of their pregnancy. One mom had a really serious bout with COVID, as unfortunately people who are pregnant often do. And she had to have the, her delivery moved up to 32 weeks from the typical 40 weeks because of that. The child was born and was having seizures. And I understand that that child is now on hospice. The other mom had a really mild case of COVID during her second trimester. It hardly did anything apparently to her. But the child was born with seizures and that child died. And that child at autopsy, the virus was at least rare. There was, there was evidence of the virus in the child's brain. So the concerning thing about these two cases, as you point out, it appear, they appear to be rare, thank goodness. But the concerning thing is that we've now demonstrated that this virus, at least in certain circumstances, even if you have a mild infection in pregnancy, can cross to the fetus. And if it does, it can cause damage, at least in this case, to the central nervous system, which of course raises the specter of, well, could this mean that children who are, who are born to moms who had COVID during pregnancy, will they start to experience developmental delays that will manifest a number of years later when they, for example, go to school? We, of course, don't know the answer to that. All of this comes back to um, what is terribly important for people who are pregnant to recognize, and that is that COVID is a serious infection for moms who are pregnant. It's much more serious than it is for, for women who are not pregnant. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, something about pregnancy makes moms much more susceptible to having a serious outcome. And now we know that even with a mild infection during pregnancy, the, the newborn can be affected, and, and in this case, very seriously. So moms have to do everything they can when they're pregnant to not get COVID. And the most important thing is to be sure that they're vaccinated. Um, vaccination is shown to not only protect mom against serious outcomes during her pregnancy, but it's shown also to protect the newborns for a number of months because those antibodies that mom gets from the vaccine cross to the newborn. It's, it's really unfortunate that we don't see more pregnant people getting vaccinated. And that's something we have to do a better job in, in uh, making sure that uh, women are protected either before they get pregnant or certainly in the early stages of pregnancy. The other thing I'd like to just point out before I stop um, is what you had mentioned earlier, Jesse, about um, uh, the effects of COVID in the black population. Um, there, there was a very important study that was published um, just, I think, a week or two ago that showed that black women have much more serious outcomes um, and much more high, a much higher mortality rate 
than non-black women in the United States. And the authors of this study, interestingly, um, showed that this was the case not only for black women who didn't have access to care because of lack of funds or for other reasons that they didn't have access, but also for black women who uh, came from uh, very well-to-do communities and very well-to-do homes where they had resources and they had access. Black women have a poorer outcome um, uh, than than white women and uh, other ethnic groups. And the explanation is not clear why this is the case. There is nothing there is no biological explanation for this. The explanation comes from something about the black experience here in the United States. Wow. Thank you for sh- taking that deep dive with us and, and finding that and sharing that information. We're going to go now to the phone lines uh, for questions about COVID for Dr. Schwartzberg. Um, we'll start with Jim from Eureka. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Quick question. Has the CDC made, it, made up its collective mind about a booster for people over 55 this spring and for people with immune com- uh, you know, problems? Quick answer, no. Um, the FDA has to have the first word in that, and the FDA is currently mulling this over. Um, everybody that I talk to and all the reading I've done suggests that the FDA is very likely within the next very few weeks to approve the vaccine for use in people who are at higher risk. I have no idea what that's going to translate to, Jim. It could be people 55 and over. It could be people 50 and over. I think it's more likely going to be people 65 and over. It will certainly be anybody at any age who has an underlying condition that makes them at much greater risk of having a bad outcome. So I think the FDA is going to do that, and if the FDA does, then the CDC will set parameters for its use. So I I keep waiting for um, an announcement, and I think we're going to hear it um, fairly soon, uh, that the vaccine will be not necessarily recommended. I think it's more likely we'll hear the FDA say that the vaccine is available for anybody who falls into these groups uh, who, after talking with their health care provider, has decided they want to get it. So it's what we call a passive recommendation. And we hope that passive recommendation also is available for people who need it. Um, Again, the number to call in if you have a question about COVID science for Dr. Schwartzberg is 1-800-958-9008. We're going to go to Oakland for another call. Uh, Micheline, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, my question relates to uh, the doctor's kind of description of how our current vaccines don't necessarily keep the virus from being in our mucus and I our mu- mucosal systems. I'm not sure what the word is, but but in listening, I realized that I have a question. I was exposed to COVID uh, this past Sunday, not. Sunday before last, yesterday, uh, and the person uh, who was um, the person was diagnosed on Monday, uh, tested positive, and I've been testing negative, but I guess my question is, and I, I don't, I'm not 100 percent sure it's the right question, but I guess my question is, based on what the doctor just said, is it possible that I actually was contagious or have 
the virus, but that it didn't somehow get into my system further. To, I'm not sure what the question is there, but I'm wondering if you can say more about that process. Sure. Um, Micheline, that's actually a very important question, at least how I understand it. Um, it's possible to get infected. Um, that is, you inhale the virus that it multiplies in, on your mucous membranes like your nose and throat, uh, but you don't get any symptoms. You have what, what uh, we call asymptomatic infection. And unfortunately, uh, you are contagious if you have an asymptomatic infection. So um, that's another argument for these nasal vaccines to prevent that phenomenon from happening. You know, if you're feeling fine, um, people aren't going to be particularly careful if they're feeling fine, uh, but they can be feeling fine and still be contagious. Now, that said, um, getting drilling down to your situation, um, the fact that you were exposed eight days ago uh, tells us that it's very unlikely that um, you're going to come down with COVID now. Um, most, particularly with Omicron and its subvariants, we're seeing a very short incubation period. That is a short period of time between the time you're infected and the time you become symptomatic. It's usually just a handful of days, uh, just a very few, like two, three, four days in there is most typical. So it's unlikely you're going to come down with COVID now. The second thing to answer your question, were you contagious? That is, did you have an asymptomatic infection? Well, I can't tell you for sure, of course, but the fact that you've been testing regularly, I presume that's with the home test, um, tells us that it's very unlikely that you were. So I think all in all, uh, the news is good for you. You probably were not asymptomatically infected and therefore contagious, and you're almost assuredly not going to come down with COVID from that exposure eight days ago. Excellent. And we have time for one more very quick call. We're going to speak with Carrie from Oakland. Carrie, you are on the air and we're going to ask you to bring your question very quickly because we just have about sure. a minute and a half left. Yeah. Hi. Um, I am just viewing the public health failure of COVID and I'm hoping the doctor can talk me down. I just am feeling like the entire CDC response and the hospitals not requiring masking um, is just a complete public health failure and I'm wondering if the good doctor could say something more positive and help me see things more positively. Thank you. Sure. I'll try and be pithy too. Um, very thoughtful, good people see this issue very differently. I can only tell you how I see it. I think it's a mistake that um, we don't require masks for healthcare workers still in, in the settings of the hospitals. Um, I think that, you know, of course, if you're in the hospital, you're very, very sick. You don't get in the hospitals anymore unless you're quite ill. And it, getting COVID on top of whatever brought you into the hospital would really be a disaster. There was a paper published just two weeks ago showing that an awful lot of healthcare workers come to work sick. And the reasons for that are myriad. But the bottom line is that's called presenteeism as opposed to absenteeism. So we know that healthcare workers will come to work sick um, or they could be asymptomatically infected. Wearing that mask would help protect everybody. So I think it's a mistake. Um, Alam uh, Alameda County and Contra Costa County um, are requiring masks for all skilled nursing facilities, but not for hospitals. Santa Clara County and San Francisco County are requiring masks right now for uh, uh, 
people work, healthcare workers in the hospitals. And I think Santa Clara County and San Francisco County are to be commended for that. And we are out of time for this week's COVID call-in segment. Thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Schwartzberg. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org, or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people and we ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.